And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Crude Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest, Hugo Award-winning author, Seng Cho, on the Crude Street Podcast! Oh, <laughs> cold is telling. It really is. Oh, Jonathan, just, just take some medicine for that. Congratulations, then. You have not only uh, Hugo, but uh, two books coming out in one year, which is something that uh, not everybody is able to pull off. Uh, well, I mean, one of the books was published once before, and I, I think uh, it's it's like um, what they say about buses. You know, you wait, <laughs> you wait ages right. for them to come along at once. But then, but, but the, uh, uh, the 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 story collection, uh, Spirits Abroad, was, as I recall, the Malaysian edition was much smaller than the Small Beer Press edition. Um, yeah, that's right. No, but there's a really funny story behind that, which oh, is. Oh. Um, um, I got Amir, who runs the publishing company in Malaysia, Fixie, um, to publish it um, by basically just sort of have, I had a chat with him, um, you know, at, at one of our book events in, in Malaysia. And he said to me, and I said, you know, how long are you thinking? Um, you know, kind of thinking of the stories that I had um, mm-hmm. to put together. And he said, oh, I never, I never want to publish a book that's more than 50,000 words because I want everyone to read, I want people to read every page. <laughs> and that makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> but he's really funny though, because one of his bestsellers, the author told me, you know, she sent him the manuscript and she, he was partway through reading and he rang her and said, look, can you cut this down to 50,000 words for, you know, his kind of reason? And she said, well, have you, have you read the whole thing yet? And he said, no. And she said, well, it is, I admit it is 100,000 words, but maybe you could just read the whole book and then come back and tell me if you think it actually needs to be cut in half. And, and indeed, he read it and, and agreed that, you know, it pro- probably did need all those words. Um, and it's, you know, one of their best-selling books. Um, so... So yeah, um, the, it, it was quite short. So I, I, I was quite strict about obviously what re- stories right. I included in that edition because, you know, I was only allowed fifty sixty thousand words. Um, when I um, reached out to Small Beer Press and asked if they'd be interested in re-releasing it, you know, they they asked for more content. Um, so, um, so we we dug up a couple of extra, a few extra stories um, that had been published since since then and, and included them in, in Spirits Abroad. Well, I suppose there was seven more years of work. You know, I mean, for all that your career, as I'm aware of it, starts about 2010. I mean, it was still very early to have a first collection. It went on to win the Crawford Awards, which was pretty, pretty amazing. But still, it was very early days. Was there a time when you began to feel like you were finding your own feet with this writing thing, finding what you wanted to talk about? Or is that still a work in progress? I think in a way it's a work in progress for every writer, you know, it kind of continues developing in the course of your life. Certainly with Spirits Abroad, you know, the stories in Spirits Abroad, yeah, it's an interesting point. It, it, it did come fairly early. So I think it was published in 2014. So the year before my mm-hmm. first novel came out. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, so there was only kind of four years on, as you say, from when I was starting to write um, original fiction for publication. What I would say is I think for a long time before then, I had in mind the sort of thing I wanted to be doing. And I, and I, and I just thought it wasn't quite there yet. I hadn't quite worked out what it was. You know, I hadn't found that voice. Um, and I was writing a fair amount in my teens, um, fanfic. Um, almost mm-hmm. exclusively. Um, but I kind of had an idea of what I wanted to be doing. I remember even talking to people when I was around 16 saying, you know, I'm just not ready yet. Um, and they were sort of saying, oh, you should just, you know, you should just go for it. Um, I just, I, I didn't really have it in me quite yet. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, I think um, when I started writing um, 
for public, you know, kind of with an eye towards publication, writing original fiction in, and that was in 2010, um, and started, you know, getting published in a fairly small way with kind of, you know, fairly token paying mm-hmm. magazines. Um, that was when I, I, I worked, I sort of worked it out. I think you, you just, you sometimes in, in, you know, a creative career is interesting, isn't it? And I, and I mean, not the publishing side, but the writing side, yeah. Um, yeah. because you can spend a long time just kind of feeling like you've plateaued or that you're not making any progress or, or you know, God forbid, you're backsliding in terms of ability. Um, but then sometimes you will just make this leap. Um, and, I, and I think with Spirits Rod, with the stories there, I, they are a, a result of a certain leap, you know, or, or the, the manifestation of that leap happening, where I, where I sort of found this voice that I, kn- I knew I'd been looking for for some years. Um, and I think, I think in terms of it's being quite, ne- nevertheless, it, is, it, is, it was quite early to have a collection as my first book, but I guess, um, you know, it was a fairly classic um, progression in, in the sense that, you know, part of the reason why I was writing short fiction is because I hadn't really worked out longer fiction. Um, and, you know, and, and getting a, the fact that it was published by a small press, there was a bit more flexibility there. You know, no, mm-hmm. big, no big five press was going to take on a short story collection from me at that point. But um, I, I expressly at that time wanted um, a collection that would be accessible to, to Malaysians to, to, you know, distribute it in Malaysia and sold yeah. there because uh, my short stories had been were being published in, in kind of Western magazines online mostly. Um, so that so it kind of achieved that that purpose. What I then found, obviously, is as my audience grew and it was majority outside Malaysia, that, is that people kind of just couldn't get a hold of the book because it wasn't really available outside Malaysia. You know, I think Amir Self sold it on like Amazon.com. But he yeah. only had, they only allowed him to like, you know, like send them like two or three copies at a time. So it, it was always showing up as out of stock, basically, which obviously yeah, people yeah. are buying something. Was, so, um, uh, uh, so yeah, so that's that's why eventually I was, I um, and then, and then it went out of print in Malaysia. So um, mm-hmm. with that press, so that's why I then sought um, a different publisher. So I'm really happy that Small Beer Press took it on. I was administrator, I still am, of the of the Crawford Award, and I'm trying to remember now is one of our. One of our uh, UK judges that found a copy, but we were all, I mean, it was one of those things where you're, you're, you're giving an award to a book that nobody can get, basically, uh, at least in the States here. And we were really proud of ourselves, but to this day, I don't remember whether it was Graham Slide or Farah or somebody, but somebody had gotten a copy of the book in the UK, which is how you came to the attention of all the rest of the judges then. I mean, for a while, I was hand-selling it at cons in the UK, so, so possibly, you know. It could be. Um, that could yeah. be where it came yeah. from. Well, let me ask you, I mean, you touch on this, but when you talk about selling the book into Malaysia, how important it was to you to have a Malaysian presence as a writer, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about how important, because you can see it in your work, and it'll come up again when we're talking later, um, that connection has been for you creatively and in your work, being a, I don't know how you would choose to describe it, an, Eng- an English-Malaysian person, a Malaysian-English person, whatever it is. How important is that kind of uh, connection, dichotomy, uh, and what challenges does it throw out for you? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, so much of my work draws in Malaysia. Um, even even stuff like Sorcerer to the Crown and True Queen, you know, my first two novels, mm-hmm. which are set substantially in the UK or exclusively in the UK in Sorcerer to the Crown's case. I mean, that they are, you know, they you sort of read it and that there, there, there are not only kind of, it's not only kind of a post-colonial point of view it's not only a kind of commonwealth citizen's point of view but it's it's, it's a kind of a malaysian person's point of view i think and, and there's obviously malaysian characters in it um and in fact the whole the whole plot actually hinges around essentially the fate of an island in, in, in malaya mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. 
although it's not necessarily that's not necessarily obvious from the outside, you know, it's all going to read through a story. I, I do think it's very important to me. I, I identify essentially, and it's an interesting one because I, I, I think someone who was in the same position as me could identify in lots of different ways. Um, but I came to the UK when I was 17 or 18. You know, studied, did my A-levels here, went to university. The plan was always good to go back home to Malaysia. Um, and um, But then I met um, the person who eventually became my husband at university, and I decided to stay. Um, and that was kind of a slow decision over in the course of years, you know. Mm. Um, but so I, I identify as a Malaysian expat in the UK. Um, but I, I think it would be completely fair to me of me to identify as a British Malaysian or, or, you know, as an immigrant, you know, there, there are lots of different ways I could identify. Um, that's just how I've, I've decided. And I have to say, you know, because it's, it's quite common, you know, amongst um, particularly perhaps Chinese Malaysians of my socioeconomic background um, to kind of move to other countries. Um, yeah. there, there is a large expat overseas expat community Um you know, I've, I've very, I've, I've mostly found that Malaysians in Malaysia are quite happy to accept me. You know, accept me as a Malaysian. I mean, particularly because we love bandwagoning on on success <laughs> of overseas Malaysians. So, I mean, not to be snarky, I'm not, and I'm mostly not nearly as successful as no, Ed Young, no. for example. But Ed Young, you know, the science journalist who who won a Pulitzer recently. Um, you know, I hadn't even known that he had any Malaysian connection, but apparently he he is rich. You know, he was born in Malaysia and moved to the UK. I think when he was 13 or something. And so, you know, the, the press in Malaysia are all over this, uh, have been all over this. Um, and there's been a kind of backlash on social media in that kind of classic, you know, 21st century well, of um, kind of development of discourse. Um, but backlash on social media pointing out that Ed Yong could never have done what he does now if he'd stayed mm. in Malaysia. You know, there, there would have been all sorts of issues. Um, there wouldn't just ha- there just wouldn't have been the support for the level of science journalism that he does. Um, but yeah, anyway, so so it's it can be a kind of, I guess, complicated relationship. Um, but in a way, I think for me, it's 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 uh, my relationship with Malaysia and kind of Malaysian culture and society. In a way, it's less complicated than it would be if I lived there. I think because mm-hmm. um, I can see that my friends who stayed there, you know, it, it's it's where you live, so it, it, it mediates your kind of everyday life. You know, it, it's um, and you don't just see the good side; you see the bad sides. And and particularly, you know, all the kind of a lot of things that I represent. You know, being fairly progressive, being a woman, being fairly outspoken. Um, being Chinese, being um, uh, you know, writing a lot of queer fiction, all of that stuff is, is stuff that's just not really mainstream, you know, really not accepted in, in some in, in many ways in Malaysia. And so, I think having that distance uh, almost enables me to romanticize it. Um, yeah. You know, maybe it makes it easier to draw it into my fiction um, because it is kind of a safe distance. So it's, it's a kind of an interesting relationship. Yeah. There's a there's a degree to which, well, in in, in Blackwater Sister, there are all kinds of, um, I guess, forms of alienation. You have a character who has you're, you've got the Chinese community within Malaysia, uh, which is kind of an outsider community. You've got obviously a, a queer uh, protagonist, which is a genuine problem. There are points in the novel where I thought, which is worse, having a, a grandmother who's an angry god inside your head? Or having your parents find out that you're gay. Uh, I mean, that, and that's part of the suspense. But I think one of the things that also comes with that is the sense, and I've talked to other people about this, that you, know, you don't need to be an ambassador for a particular society. For example, uh, Nadia Korofor, when she writes about Nigeria, openly acknowledges a kind of history of politically corrupt problems there. Uh, and yet that doesn't mean you're not in some ways celebrating the culture. So it sounds to me like you've long since dealt with the issue of being a de facto ambassador of Malaysian or Chinese Malaysian culture. 
yeah. Have I dealt with it? I, I think I, I'm very uncomfortable with the position of ambassador. I think I think if anything, I try to reject it. But I suppose, you know, my my work is is about exploring kind of what interests me, and obviously, mm. um, and obviously the Chinese Malaysian experience, for example, is is something that interests me very much, um, and and that can be taken from the outside as as a kind of I guess me setting myself up as a representative, um, to the extent that like people ask me. Um, questions that assume that I'm able to represent. I, I always sort of do push back on that because I haven't lived in the country full time since uh-huh. since I was 18, um, and and you know I, I also belong to a fairly uh, how do I put this like rarefied like limited section of the population. Like I would say, I think I saw some statistics. It's like 80 percent of Chinese Malaysia primarily speak Chinese. Like mm. I, I'm just you know I, I barely speak any Chinese dialect, um, and so just culturally that is a big difference. Um, uh, you know, being Sinophone versus Anglophone. Um, so, I, but I, I suppose because it's something that I've had to think about and, and you know, kind of gra- grapple with an ongoing basis, I, I suppose I've come to some sort of peace with it and some, you know, kind of mm. clearly articulated position. Do you feel there's too much pressure put on writers who have a non-North American, non-UK background to represent their background in a way that somebody else wouldn't be asked to for their fiction? Yeah, I think so. I think, but I think it's inevitable. Um, I think you know, and I think the pressure comes um, from all sides. You know, you um, to the kind of outsider. You know, maybe you're the only. You know, maybe this. You know, maybe Blackwater Sister will be the first book for many people that that mm-hmm. um, is it is a glimpse into Malaysian culture or set in Malaysia or, or depicts Malaysian families. Um, and so for them, that that will just be the representation. Um, and there's a lot of baggage that comes along with that, right? Because you know, there's there's kind of you know, you want to make sure you're understood. But then obviously there's the community, you know, like Malaysians oh. will want to feel they're understood, you know, um, and that, that that is kind of, I guess, accurate or fair. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, so so there is, I think there is a lot of, um, just inevitably, just a lot of, of, of pressure on writers from these, I guess, quote, quote, unquote, non-traditional backgrounds that um, you wouldn't have if you're from a perhaps better understood um, culture globally. Since Gary segued into talking about Blackwater Sister, which is mm-hmm. your third novel and is just out recently, could you give listeners a quick thumbnail sketch of the book? Yeah. So Blackwater Sister is about a young woman called Jess, um, and she has spent most of her life in America, but her parents are from Malaysia, and she, um, the American dream has gone a bit wrong for them, so she's now moving back to Malaysia, where she was born, but it's not a country she knows particularly well. And she's under some stress. She's just out of university. She has got a job. She's got this girlfriend that her parents don't know about, and she doesn't want her family to know. Um, and they're, you know, they're conducting a long-distance relationship, and she's, you know, masterminding this intercontinental move. When she starts hearing um, a voice in her head, and it turns out to be the voice of a ghost, um, her estranged grandmother, um, who she didn't know particularly well in life, and Ama, um, her grandmother, has very strong ideas of what Jess should be doing with her life. Um, she's got unfinished business, and she wants Jess to help her transact it. And so that then leads Jess in various adventures uh, involving gods, ghosts, gangsters, and grandmas and i suppose jess gives you that opportunity because in in a sense she's the least malaysian malaysian character in the book so she's the perspective that allows you to see everything anew to try and understand the i guess the spiritual and the fantastical elements of the of the world and the worldview as well as the complexities of the economic and cultural situation in penang and in malaysia which 
both she and the reader at large might not be familiar with. Yeah, she's that you know the convenient kind of outsider insider character, a bit like Harry Potter in Harry Potter, where he you know he's new to the magical world, the wizarding mm-hmm. world, so he gets introduced to it. Um, but yeah, so she, I mean, Jess is kind of interesting, like culturally, because I would say in in some ways she's got more cultural competence than I have, so I've given her better Hokkien than I have actually. Um, Hokkien being the language that she speaks mm-hmm. with her parents, and that is um, one of the major languages of Penang. Um, but um, Equally, she she grew up in America, so there's lots of stuff that I know that she did, of course. Um, but yeah, so she is a, she's a useful kind of vantage point to, to see the world. Was she where Blackwater's sister began? What was the the origin for 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 the book and for the story? Yeah, so the, so there are kind of two things that came together. Um, mm. The first thing was when I was researching for Sorcerer to the Crown um, and True Queen, I I spent a lot of time um, on the Oxford English Dictionary website. OED, um, because one of the ways, because they're historical fantasies set in 1800s, um, Britain, and one of the ways I, I um, built that world um, was via the use of language and, and prose. You know, I deliberately used this fairly archaic voice. Um, and um, so I spent a lot of time kind of going through the OED, kind of working out if words had been used or hadn't weren't in common usage at that time, but also finding kind of unusual words. So thaumaturge is quite, you know, is, is used in the book to mean magician. Um, and I know it's been used in other kind of fantasy series as well, but I think it's being kind of an unusual word. Um, it's, it is a real word as in, you know, it was, used back then, back in the day and i think that gives it bones but um it's being unusual kind of makes it feel like it's like, like a it is a different world it, it signals to people right this is a you know this is a magical um and in the course of those kind of researches i found this word hag ridden which i think i did actually use in sorcery mm-hmm. possibly, um which um you know it's hag as in witch and then ridden as in you know she's riding you around and so it basically means stressed but it also um it also does refer to witches, you know, I think, you know, the idea that you've been cursed by this witch, she's riding you around. Um, but the word itself just gave me this kind of idea for a story about, you know, a young person who's who's hag-ridden by her terrible ancestors, you know. And immediately, I knew it'd be a story about a kind of young woman and, um, you know, and, and these kind of ancestors riding her around. So that, so that was one half of the story the idea. The other half came when I read a book called The Way That Lives in the Heart by Jean D. Bernardi which is an academic text. Uh, Jean B. Bernardi is an anthropologist and she went to Penang in the 1980s. I think she's from Canada originally. She went to Penang and um, did some field research um, into uh, the religious practices there of the Chinese community. So she studied um, the practices of Chinese popular religion, but also um, spirit mediumship. Um, And what that book did, so I grew up with that religious background um but my parents were very superstitious so they never really explained anything like everything was really taboo um so there's a line in the book about Jess's parents where it says something like you know Jess's parents uh their attitude towards the god is to kind of leave them alone in the hope that the gods will return that favor and my that was definitely my parents attitude growing up when i was growing up and so what the book did was kind of provide an intellectual framework um for all this these beliefs that i'd lived them around but not really understood and and the book kind of explained them you know and it kind of and it, it pulled them into a kind of larger framework of of for example a lot of gods in in kind of chinese popular popular religion you know they might be referred to in books um like journey to the west or or romance of the three kingdoms um or it might they might be from chinese history so the, the book kind of 
puts you know provides all that context um so and it's just, it was just really rich with kind of story and, and kind of anecdote and i just thought this is just really interesting and i knew i'd write a book based on that so what happened was those those two ideas kind of came together and that that kind of is where Black I, I, I was also wondering when i read the uh, reading the lead story in the new edition of spirits abroad which is the first witch of that demansara demansara uh, yeah Okay, uh, which is about a British, a, a, a young Malaysian girl in England whose grandmother dies and who goes home, which is the same opening situation, except in this case, I re- it, it strikes me as meaningful that the grandmother has turned into a vampire of some sort, rather than a, a, a kind of god. And in both cases, uh, and this is something I think is consistent throughout your fiction and is not easy to bring off in fantasy these days. There are there are genuine comic elements. They're as frightening as the grandmother is in both the story and the novel. She's also very funny at times. Um, and that came across, uh, of course, the uh, the Sorcerer to the Crown and the True Queen novels. There's that element of introducing uh, or, or satirizing the sexism and racism uh, through humor. And uh, we should probably mention the order of uh, the pure moon reflected in the water, which is just flat out fun. I mean, it's 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 kind of a wushio western done with. Uh, uh, I don't know. I, I I kept trying to visualize what actor could play that role of of, of the nun. But but anyway, they're they're all a lot of fun. But to get back to my original point, though, uh, it seemed to me that what I noticed in several of the stories uh, that they deal with. Um, kind of an interplay between English and Malaysian culture. They deal either with Malaysian or Chinese characters in England or characters in England returning to Malaysia. And it seems to me that in the fantasy world, that's a niche all your own. Nobody else has come close to this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's common enough that you, you think at some point someone would also explore it. So I know Cassandra Kaur, for example, spent some time in the UK as well as Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And this always reminds me of some story. Again, Amir, my my Malaysian publisher, told where he was um, sort of talking to a friend, I think, about going to London. And his friend said, oh, Amir, you know, and and the friend was talking about meeting, you know, I think running into someone Mm -hmm. that he'd known in Malaysia. And he said, oh, Amir, London's so Malay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I think that connection between, I guess, what you might call the metropolis and these, you know, former colonial territory is something that's really, really really interesting. And, you know, something that's kind of live in my my life and my, my kind of history and my my culture so why not in my art as well um was it important to you to be respectful of the cultural elements that came from malaysia that had to do with i guess spirituality to do with to what would appear to a western eye supernatural kind of belief rather than casting it in a pure fantasy kind of way or whatever else like that it strikes me that that's something that I've, you know, it happens in in uh, Blackwater Sister and in the in other parts of your work. There's this desire to sort of portray this in a serious, sensitive way that respects what it is, while also bringing it into story. Yeah, you you know, it, it's respect is an interesting word, isn't it? Um, it's something that is very. Um, What's the word? Conte- I don't know. Contested, con- controversial, mm. fraud. That's the word I'm looking for. Fraud, yeah. It's very fraud, I think, um, because you know Malaysia is a country where like religion's a real kind of tool of political mm. power, um, and so I think I, I think for me as someone who is kind of broadly vaguely agnostic, I guess is one word for it, um, or, or what we call in Malaysia a free thinker. Um, you know, being a free thinker doesn't mean you're you're an atheist or anything. You could have various different beliefs, but it probably doesn't mm. mean you're not. You're not that religious, you know. Um, yeah. 
Uh, and I think um, so. For me, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily about respect. Um, although I, you know, I I am conscious, for example, that when you're dealing with a real life religious tradition that isn't very well understood in the global stage, you you do want kind of be fair. You know, you don't want to you don't want to kind of dismiss it or, or kind of make fun of it. But um, I think for me, it was more about um, trying to be truthful in a way, and I, I think conveying a certain worldview um, and. One thing I talk a lot about a lot when I talk about this book is the fact that um, you know pretty much all my Malaysian friends and family believe in you know, almost mm. all of them, and I include people mm. my age who went to university. You know, my best friend, for example, you know she's university educated. She's based in Switzerland at the moment. She has some big corporate job, um, and um, and we were chatting the last back, time I was back home about. Um, you know, it was a really sad incident of, of a young girl who um, whose family went there to Malaysian holiday, and the the girl who had had I think learning difficulties just vanished one night, and there was a big kind of hunt for her. Um, you know, they, they were staying in some sort of forest mm-hmm. resort, um, and as I and it was it was very mysterious, and and, and the you know her and, and her body was found some time later. Nobody knows what happened or, or mm-hmm. what what killed her, um, and um, and I was talking to my best friend, and it became evident in the course of the conversation that she just took it as read that it had been a supernatural incident you know that she said she said you know the the window to basically you know what happened was she went to bed in the hotel room and then and it was i think it was on the ground floor and then the window was or maybe it wasn't on the ground floor i don't know maybe that was part of the mystery um and then the window was open but there were no footsteps out you know there were no footprints outside and she was just gone um and then she was just found somewhere in the forest later and um and you know my best friend was just kind of convinced it was like yeah what what else could explain that apart from you know supernatural intervention and i said like well, I don't know. Maybe you know. Maybe some human being kidnapped her, and then the rain washed away their footprints. You know, and she was like, "Oh yeah, I guess that's that's one explanation." <laughs> I was like, yeah, that is one explanation. It's not as likely. Yeah, it's not as likely. I mean, everyone no. knows the forest is full of spirits. So um, that's the thing. So I think like um, it's it's um, it was re- it's really important to me to 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 convey this worldview um, because I mean it would just be kind of fake if if I if I didn't. You know, um, and and um, I guess like one of the purposes of literature, as I see it, is to kind of remind people that that like um, you know about difference in a way, and and that um, you know although I'm Western educated, um, I, I'm not a Westerner, and and part of that is is growing up in in a different mindset. One of the things that uh, uh, comes across I, I, again in 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 both the novel and the stories are there's just a huge rich variety of supernatural figures in Malaysian lore which uh, which most of us have never seen before and there as, as a matter of fact one uh, relationship in relationship to the kind of political environment there one of the more amusing stories has to deal with called the first national forum on the position of minorities in Malaysia when invisible supernatural voices want to be represented as minorities too <laughs> Um, but one of the things, I, my question is, and it's interesting, uh, people dealing with unfamiliar terms or unfamiliar uh, concepts uh, to an English language reader, uh, you've made a choice not to italicize, not to explain, not to put any of these terms in uh, quotation marks. And it's an interesting experience uh, reading because traditionally um, when terms like that show up, they're at least italicized. And now I realize that when you're not doing it, you're inviting the reader into the story in a way that those uh, italicizations wouldn't do. In other words, you're not calling attention to the words as anything other than part of the normal narrative. And since that's an unusual 
technique? Is that something you decided consciously to do? Yeah. When did I start doing that? Because I, I definitely, you know, I used to um, italicize um, non-English words just as just as everyone does, you know, kind of mm-hmm. house style. Yeah. Um, I think certainly when I published with Fixie, um, their thing, you know, they have they have a little manifesto at the beginning of the book. So let me see if I can get it up. I've read it out. It's ah. always been very popular. Um, so here's the original. I've got the original edition of um, Spirits Abroad here. Uh-huh. And, um, and and they had this manifesto, um, which, you know, they had before I ever published with them. Um, and it starts with number one. We believe that Umpute Guailo speak is a Malaysian language. Umpute and, and Guailo just mean white just means white people so they mean english basically oh. is a malaysian language um and um number five is we will not use italics for non-american slash non-english terms this is because those words are not foreign to a malaysian audience so we will not have they had italicized nasi lemak oh. and went back to italicized konkek but rather they had nasi lemak and went back to konkek nasi lemak and konkek are some of the pleasures of malaysian life that should be celebrated without apology italics are a apology so and so I, I guess with definitely from spirits, you know, from publishing with 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 um, right. uh, Fixie with spirits abroad, um, I, I you know to the extent that I had italicized anything, I just removed that for for that edition. Um, I think Sor- like, sorcery does italicize the non English words, and I, I think okay. possibly the same with Blue Queen. I can't remember with Queen now actually. I, I actually with Blackwater Sister, I I thought briefly about it. I, I thought about it, and the reason for that is. Um, with the stories and spirits abroad, it makes sense not to italicize the non-English terms because you just use them as part of the language. It's not right. foreign, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, so if, for example, if I'd had a, a passage in French in spirits abroad, I probably would have italicized that because they, you know, it would have mm-hmm. been Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, but in Blackwater Sister, because it's from Jess's point of view, I wondered whether it'd be interesting to have those, um, you know, and she's essentially American. She's grown up in America. Um I wonder whether it'd be interesting to have Hokkien and Malay and so on italicized. And I, I, I ultimately, I decided against it um, because to, you know, her Malaysian relatives who are using these words, right. they are kind of foreign terms. Um, but I thought that was kind of, that would be an interesting way of kind of highlighting them. Did you find yourself having, well, trying to write for for rhythm and accent to get the voice to come through? So that rather than worrying about italicizing words, getting the meaning to come through contextually. I know even... You know, colloquially in the speech in the, in the book, you know, there, you know there, things will be appended with la and this kind of thing, and it sort of has a certain rhythm for that to make sense, right? It is in a sense differently, but similarly to even Shakespearean English, you, you need that that rhythm. Hmm. So, how important was trying to build that rhythm into the speech you were writing, so that you could then build those characters and distinguish between them and have them become uh, something some readers could, could could connect with. Well, it was really important, but also it was just so easy. Like I can't even tell you. I think I think um, I think the thing is, you know, starting with source writing, starting up sort at novel length with Sorcerer to the Crown and the True Queen. I you know I was deliberately kind of writing in a language obviously that I don't use in everyday life. Mm. That I just have a great fondness for from from reading Jane Austen or Georgian Hare and, and and people like that. Um, and so that that was a lot harder to kind of keep up you know um whereas with blackwater sister one of the interesting things about writing it was was how unadorned language was for me that um firstly the the narrative is in this kind of um you know it took a little bit of effort um but it's from from this kind of millennial zoomer kind of point of view so i could use any word i wanted in a way um the only thing was to avoid 
obvious anglicisms and I didn't really succeed in that um I, you know I, I had a couple of anglicisms stripped out at, towards the kind of end when you know my editor was like what does down tools mean and I, I hadn't realized it was it was a British usage um plummy someone someone came from my plummy as well like I, I, I described someone as having a plummy accent and uh, it, it was um Kate Elliott actually helped helped me beta read it um and pick out Americanisms and she was like no we wouldn't we wouldn't use that um so um so but but overall you know like I, I could just uh, write in a way that felt natural and so the dialogue also felt very natural because um you know it's how I speak to my family um and I think all the characters almost you know the malaysian characters are, are all types that i that feel very familiar to me um i'm particularly proud of sheng who's the son of the um the gang boss basically that, oh. that um just um and her grandmother are fighting and who's this international you know kind of mixed race international school um you know quite sort of fancy guy um and he's said to have an american accent that's kind of on a, a base of penangite um and um i feel that you know if you know that kind of person i i do feel that his dialogue is very recognizable in a very particular way so I'm, I'm pretty proud of him he's a he's a kind of subspecies that you know not i think wouldn't have been seen often in kind of anglophone literature before <laughs> so is this the most the most zentro zentro book that you've written so far yeah i think that's probably right yeah and i mean sort of I, one thing i'd want to stress gary talked about the book being funny i mean this is a funny uh action-paced book it's kind of like if i was going to like quick blurb but i'd be going this is sort of like crazy not particularly rich supernaturally influenced malaysians right <laughs> well, <laughs> you know <laughs> it has that sort of feel and the point that it connected I mean, very superficially was this whole idea of coming back to the culture and experiencing the culture and providing that insight into it and one of the things that is important there as well is Jess's queerness? At what point did you realize Jess was going to be queer? Because it's it's a choice. Mm. So at, at what point did that happen in the story? Um, at some point after, you know, I, I talked about kind of having these two ideas of Hagrid and, and the book, mm -hmm. the, the way that lives in the heart, coming together to make the premise of the book. Um, and and then and I was thinking of, so it was after that. But but once I had the premise, I was thinking, okay, who's the kind of main character? And then the the first line just kind of came to me. Um, the first line where where the ghost Ama says to Jess, "Does your mother know you're gay?" Essentially, she says, "Does your mother know you're a bunkin?" Mm -hmm. um, which is a Malay word for kind of means tomboy. Kind of means like maybe like butch lesbian um, is derogatory. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, is it? Is it Sorry, this is going to be a digression, but like bunkit was is actually caused me quite a lot of grief because actually I couldn't find a Hokkien word for lesbian. Really, really? there are yeah. insulting Hokkien oh. words I know for like gay or trans, mm. not trans, you know. Um, but but not sorry, they are insulting just because they they do tend to be derogatory terms. I'm not aware of any kind of new terms really. Um, but um, but I couldn't actually find a word for lesbian, so I had to kind of reach out for for punkit, which is Malay, and and also very kind of slangy Malay, like you know, a grandmother might not know it. But I I kind of lampshaded. I excuse my excuse is that Amma is not a normal grandmother, basically. As mm -hmm, you find yeah. in the course of the um, anyway, so 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 that 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 line came to me and it's not changed in the course of the various revisions um so the first scene kind of came to me almost kind of complete um and um so i always knew there was going to be that element and actually in very early in the very early draft so i wrote i wrote around kind of ten thousand words of it um and i was pitching it to my publisher um and in the in the in the early draft 
Jess actually had a sister as well um, who was mm. trans. Um, and then I just decided, you know, when I plotted it out, I was like, the sister has literally nothing to do. Like, she just isn't doing anything. So I had to cut yeah. it. But, um, but I, I had this whole kind of idea that they, they, they'd each have different relationships with their families and different relationships with their with their queerness. And I guess in the end, in the, the, the ultimate version of the book that got published, um, that interplay in a way is played out is, is represented by Jess and her girlfriend who each have quite different relationships although they are from these kind of Asian immigrant backgrounds they have quite relationship, different relationships with their family like her um, Jess's girlfriend mm. Sharanya is out to her family um, mm. and is accepted um, whereas Jess is obviously closeted um, and, and very scared about whether she would be accepted I, I think I guess so because it came to me I, I think it, it was inherent in the book from the very outset there was like never going to be a version of the book where Jess was straight you know but it also gives you a really interesting tension in the story, I think, because you have this dicho- this dichotomy where you have Jess, who is out in America and can talk about her sexuality and live her life as a queer woman without any issue in America, who goes to Malaysia and feels she can't share this with all of her family. She hasn't told her parents either, but she, had, you know, and yet she's then has these experiences in Malaysia. She feels she can't tell her partner about who, back in the states. So it does create this tension in the story that actually is really fundamental to how we see Jess. I think through the whole piece, and I think it's interesting because for my to, to myself, I'm always interested to to see. I mean, you don't have to have a reason to have a queer character in a story. Queer queer people or everything but it's interesting to see something substantial done with it and it seems like in this case it is an integral part of the, the structure and the mm-hmm. conflict and the energy pardon me in the story well it's the whole story because because that was the question that's asked at the beginning does your mother know you're gay then i knew well, I guess what I was looking for was because when I had the premise, I was like, okay, what's the shape? You know, what's the what's what's the journey, right? And then mm. when I got the first line, then you know the journey is to bring just to that place where she can give an answer to that question that's right for her. Um, and so all the kind of like spiritual stuff is just like in a way is just like a bunch of fireworks. But the kind of the core emotional journey is is just kind of, I guess, finding that courage. Um, yeah, you know, to kind of face the 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 what to her is unthinkable, really. Um, which is, I guess, the prospect of rejection by her by her family. Well, and one of the things that I think is is, is universal about that is the sense of having to live with a having to live with your worst conservative relative, uh, which I think any young person can identify with. And I I would imagine that uh, uh, that, that, that that any young gay person who is in uh, difficult financial circumstances and you have to move back and with a wall. Um, everybody has relatives like that that you're terrified of. And so part of the terror is simply having to live with those relatives in the first place. Um, and when you add the degree of homophobia, which is, again, something that is very clear without, with, without being lectured about it. And, and one of the things I found myself wanting to find out was more about Sharania's experience, because I think it sounded so different and so uh, so much healthier, but you know there were her tensions as well that were different tensions than the one that, that, that Jess has to. Um, I had another interesting, uh, well, it's interesting to you question, but one of the things that, uh, I, you mentioned the son of the of the gangster, who I think is also a very interesting character, and for some reason I could visualize him, I could visualize his clothes, because I think I've met that guy. Um, <laughs> And yet, he's he, he, because he's a somewhat westernized capitalist figure, uh, and yet, and, and, and one of the themes that uh, 
is, is important in the book is a very modern capitalist kind of predatory real estate development theme. Um, so that as much as there's a, a lot for us uh, American and British readers to learn about Malaysia, there's a lot about Malaysia that looks similar in terms of capitalism and real estate development and so forth and so on. Uh, so to some extent, I don't know where I'm going with this, but uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, the, the, the balance between exoticism and familiarity, and by exoticism, I mean this. I've talked to any number of writers from anywhere east of Bulgaria who have had to contend with the idea of Orientalism as, as defined by Edward Said several years ago, that there is this kind of you know, romantic idea of, um, of Asian and, and, uh, um, and even Middle Eastern cultures. And it, struck, it strikes me that that's something that almost every writer has to contend with. In other words, to go back to the order of pure moon reflected in water, um, you're playing on a lot of Western ideas about Asia in that and having a lot of fun with them. Yeah, well, I, I'm pleased to hear you say that, but at the same time, I don't think I was thinking about any of Western ideas about Asia. So, <laughs> so that must have been nearly inadvertent. Um, so I, I think it's really interesting what you say about, you know, um, Sheng obviously representing, and his father, representing a certain kind of predatory yeah. um, capitalism. Um, and obviously the, all these issues around gentrification, which are so live, you know, basically everywhere in the world. In every city, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think one thing about Sheng that I, I found kind of, I was kind of exploring and it's actually a question that um, I've talked about with friends, you know, Malaysian friends, um, you know, because Sheng, yeah, he's, he's, he's a capitalist, you know, but he, he also really cares about the, the temple that his, his father's development is building. Right. So, so the, you know, the conflict, the kind of external conflict of the book um, focuses around this temple that the, the gang boss slash business, business magnate is going to raise over for, for a condominium right. development. Um, and, Jess and her her grandmother are trying to fight this um, because it's going to make the god unhappy and and you know when the god is unha- unhappy um, bad things happen. Um, so, but when she talks to Sheng, when when Jess meets Sheng, he he says you know he really cares about this temple. He wants to preserve it. And in fact, his idea for preserving it is turning it into a hipster cafe, um, which which horrifies <laughs> Jess actually. But one of one conversation I've had with my friends, so and this relates to Penang, is is that you know conservation is there's not a strong kind of. Um, there's not strong political will in Malaysia for for conservation of heritage buildings mm. and heritage sites um, and the environment and so on. Very much, it's very much driven by um, short termism, you know, uh, kind of um, you know capitalist interests, um, you know, the desire to kind of exploit the land, all all the kind of classic stuff that people in power um, are are interested in, you know, the world over. Um, and what what you find in Penang is often these kind of you know. Um, heritage places or, or kind of um or areas of forest are preserved by private interest uh, private um developers mm-hmm. whatever not not you know there's, there's not going to be public money going into it there's not going to be a public um effort around it the government's not going to do anything about it so for example um chung um which is one of the the blue mansion which is uh, which is an old kind of Peranakan house it's very beautiful um you know a very classic style of architecture is a boutique hotel for example and that's how it's been preserved and if it hadn't been bought over by the boutique hotel then i don't know probably it would have just been left to kind of molder and and fall into Mm. disuse you know um and then equally when i was last in penang i visited somewhere called the habitat which is um kind of a 
kind of a park or kind of a like a forest reserve um and you can kind of walk through it and it's really interesting and it's got like lots of different you know it's got like a suspension bridge that you can walk on and look down at the trees um and so it's really interesting and you know a really interesting way to kind of uh, experience penang's um uh you know like flora and fauna i guess um largely flora like a tropical mm. garden but I feel like in in the UK you might find somewhere like that that's that's publicly funded. Um, in Malaysia, you know, you you don't really and and the habitat, you know, it costs fifty ringgit to enter, which is like ten pounds, but it's, it's a lot of money. Um, mm-hmm. And and so like you know, one of the questions that come up comes up quite a lot, you know, when I talk to my friends about this is, you know, the kind of lack of public spaces, I guess, in Malaysia because of the lack of of, of political will and the, the part of the government. But one question is, well, is it better? for a place to be commercialized but kept alive um, or, and kept open to people or is it better you know, or is it better to, to for them not to be doing that you know it's kind of there's something kind of soulless yeah. about a company uh, like setting something up to make money out of it but then if that's the only way you're going to get that thing um, you know so that's kind of the dilemma so that that's the dilemma that in a way that that is represented in the book about you know in this discussion about the temple mm-hmm. because the acknowledgement is you know it's either going to be raised or it's going to be preserved for private interests um, and like hipsterized um, you know in the in the society that there's not really an alternative option you know mm-hmm. um, at, at least as things stand at the moment um, one one thing I wanted to mention and I, I'm conscious I've been rambling on for a long time mm-hmm. but actually the garden temple which is um, you know such a, a key site in the book and is the temple they're trying to protect is the temple of the Blackwater system the god of the title um it was actually inspired by a real temple in penang um in the book uh the way that lives in the heart Jean de bernardi calls it the shrine grotto and, and she describes visiting it and and you know all these kind of altars in mm. the base of trees um and there's some pictures of it as well um and it was it was destroyed you know as, as of the time of the writing of the book so I, i've never been able to oh. find anything about it you know beyond these like a couple of pictures and the description in this, yeah. in this book um but it's sort of i guess it kind of represents that yeah uh, how important was it you, was it for you to make penang a character in the book because it feels to me that one of the things that the story does is it presents penang to the world to a, an audience that may not be overly familiar mm-hmm. with it and one of the things which fiction itself does in allowing us to experience other things from through other people's eyes is to bring more of the rest of the world to life and i've found it in other particularly genre fiction i've been reading lately and i found very much in this book that this was about illuminating a whole part a part of the world that maybe you've never experienced before yeah i never I don't think that much about. Um, I, I know effectively it does do that, you know, bringing Penang to the world, for example. But I, I don't think that much about that ambassadorial um, aspect. I think for for me, it's very kind of internal. So why is it set in Penang? Because I have a very romantic feeling about Penang. It's a place that's easy to be romantic about. It's really beautiful. It's really charming. There's lots. Of, it's got lots of history, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's one that my family has a very strong connection to. You know, I lived in Penang for a couple of years as a kid. I have relatives there. Um, you know, I. I, I at one point, we would go there every year. Um, so I think to me, um, it, it was important to, it was just fun. In a way, it was just fun having it, you know, setting it in Penang. It, it seemed like the perfect place for it. Um, and it was like nice just spending time in it. Um, like, you know, in my imagination, it was nice having an excuse to go there for research. Um, so, um, it, and I guess it, it was important to, um, to kind of, it's kind of, you know, someone described it as a love letter to Penang. I guess that's kind of what it is. Well, we, we talked about, I mean, one of the things I felt about Penang is that you could almost find your way around it. I had a sense of the geography of the city, which you don't usually get. You get it in some London novels. You get it in 
of a, a novel set in Manchester, for example, where the geography may be easier to manipulate, which made me wonder, uh, going back, you mentioned, obviously, the sources, uh, right, like Jane Austen, but... Um, Given the fact that you're writing a kind of fantasy that isn't quite like anybody else's, and we can see some visible influences, I mean, clearly wuxia movies are important uh, to the background of The Order of Pure Moon. But what did you read growing up? What did you find attracted you to fantasy? Or or was it all fantasy? Was it fantasy and science fiction? Uh, Was it? You know, what I read growing up, right, um, I read a lot of uh, British books um specifically mm-hmm. um obviously i read american authors as well but um basically i had this membership at the the kl um kuala lumpur kids library and then when i outgrew that i then had a membership at and it, this is a public library mm-hmm. um, i then upgraded my membership to an adult membership but my parents also paid for um, a membership at the british council library mm-hmm. um, which i remember as being really influential um, because that was when i was a little bit older so i guess 12 13 or maybe 13 14 um and my parents would drive me there and kuala lumpur is like a like an hour away and the traffic's terrible so you know it's a real dedication it's real de- devotion on their part and they would drive me there and um i would borrow you know however many books that's that's the library where i discovered terry pratchett um it's uh-huh. where i discovered pg woodhouse who was also a big influence um and um and yeah so i think um terry pratchett for me definitely um it was a bit of a, a how do I put this? You know, a bit, bit of a revelation. I think for for me, it was kind of the first time I'd, I'd encountered a writer um, who dealt with serious issues, um, wanted to kind of make you feel things, but also was really, really funny and like kind of shamelessly funny, kind of, you know, sticking in puns wherever he could right. fit them in. And you might, you might say that actually he should have exercised a little bit more discipline with the puns. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe he didn't need quite so many puns, but it was, it was something to me where I was like, oh, okay, I didn't know you could have this much fun while also telling a serious story. Because I really liked, like, P.G. Woodhouse, who I read before Terry Pratchett. But mm-hmm. obviously, P.G. Woodhouse just isn't really serious in any way, which is part of the fun of his book. Um, but so I read a lot of these kind of, like, kind of retro British authors, you know, from the 1800s and, and early 1900s. Um, and then uh, and then got into, you know, and then read fantasy, but not a huge amount of fantasy. So there's still lots of, like, fantasy authors that are kind of, are kind of classic for people my mm-hmm. age. Who I've, I've never read, like, Mercedes Lackey. Um, David Eddings is his name David Eddings um, yeah like people yeah. like that I've, I've never read um, but it was kind of a mix of that and then some science fiction um, when I so firstly there were kind of in, in the school library there were like Isaac Asimov's um, like school libraries in Malaysia you know they, they always have these really old authors you know golden yeah. Asian, never never even from like 80s onwards like barely um, and um, it's, it's an interesting one because I, I, I talked to a friend um, Tendai Huchu who's from um, Zimbabwe and he was saying he was talking about how you know when you get writers from these from developing countries um, a lot of their inspiration of their genre writers are uh, you know, are going to be these kind of golden age authors with these terribly outdated kind of <laughs> science opinions <laughs> because that's what you get in the, the like You know, that's that's what's available. Um, but um, I would say I never really got into science fiction until I, I enjoyed Isaac Asimov. Um, until um, you know, I started reading the kind of um, I guess the feminists, um, which was when I was yeah. in my late teens, early twenties, kind of Octavia Butler, Joanna Russ, um, mm. Ursula Le Guin, um, and that that was a form of kind of um, science fiction I found really really kind of interesting so yeah i guess it was a mix of things but actually um uh, kind of oldie timey british books i would say kind of formed the largest part of my reading diet growing up um but to me it's a really natural entry into sff because um 
you know, I sort of jokingly say, you know, I was this kid in contemporary Malaysia, or well, it's not contemporary anymore, I guess 90s Malaysia, like reading about, you know, foreign technology like handkerchiefs and uh, horse-drawn <laughs> carriages, you know, these people, very different social norms, speaking a different form of English. So it's very, very natural to transition from that to reading about fantasy worlds. Mm. Let me ask you, I mean, you've got the, the collection has been re-released and expanded, but I noticed that with three novels and a longish novella to write, you know, you did, ha- did have a, a lull in production of short stories for a little while there. Does writing short fiction remain an important thing to you, or do you feel like that's something which has been a useful laboratory to learn in, and you're now looking to do other things? You know, it's not that I've I, I've left the form behind. Um, I do write the occasional short story, mostly when you ask me to, Jonathan. <laughs> but um, it's not the first thing I go to, and the, and the reason is I think what I'm interested in when it comes to writing just um, it, it it belongs to the kind of novelette on up, like I would say. Um, you know, I need at least kind of 10,000 words. And like short stories I perpetrate always kind of end up running to around 7,000 words, which is not, <laughs> not, you know, like not an ideal length for the short story. You want it kind of three to four, you know, thousand words, really, you know, um, <laughs> for, for kind of publication in magazines and stuff. And I just think like, um, because I think for me, a lot of the appeal of writing kind of this exploration of world, of um, character dynamic, of a relationship dynamic, um, I just find that, I just need more words to do it in, you know? Um, yeah, so, yeah. so I think it's not my natural form, actually. Do you have a feeling for having written two novels in a, in, in a, a diptych, I guess we would say, and a, a standalone novel, where you want to go next, the kind of thing that, that is drawing you forward? You know, it, so many ideas constantly, but it's whether I've got like the the kind of focus and follow through to, to take any of them to completion, you know, um, like any anything could happen. <laughs> Basically, right now what I'm doing, I'm I'm out of contract, and and I kind of deliberately decided not to try for another contract, really. Um, which sounds a bit defensive, as I'm saying. It's not, a, it's not that I was dropped by my publisher. I, I didn't. I didn't want to. But you know. But but genuinely, um, I um, I know like the next thing I've got to do to to get a get you know to pro- progress is just write another write another novel and, and and try to sell it. But um, at the moment, I'm just thinking. You know, I'm just kind of following my nose. Um, kind of trying to trying to see what interests me. So I think for the immediate future, I might just stay in novella length for a while. Quite quite like it. Um, but, um, but I think in terms of, I actually have a very clear idea of, of what novel I want to write next. Um, there probably will be a duology, I think mm-hmm. there probably will be two books. Um, but it's just, um, although I've, it's, it's very unusual for me because I've basically got the full idea of the plot. Um, and the characters are fairly distinct as well. It's just that it needs a lot of research, I think. So um, I'm just kind of putting it off for now and, and sort of <laughs> <laughs> trifling with structure, like, you know, kind of things that seem a bit more straightforward. But I'm sure I'll get to it. Let me say, okay, let, let me say something fanish about what you might be doing in the future. I really like your dragons. You have dragons that are not quite like anybody else's dragons. I think it was in the story you wrote for Jonathan where the dragon is concerned about his TripAdvisor ratings or something. Um, and then, and then in the um, or the Hugo story, if you don't, uh, if at first you don't succeed, try try again. Uh, which is where, where trying to become a dragon is sort of made parallel with trying to get tenure in a university and. Uh, and yet it becomes a really touching, sweet story. It's kind of a sad story, but nevertheless, these are really appealing humanistic dragons with all kinds of 
um, uh, identity problems that uh, I'd, I'd like to see more of. Well, Jonathan knows I had an idea for a while for like a story collection called Dragon Stories for Stressed Millennials, which were which was meant to be like basically dragons having book. really mundane life problems, like in you know if at first you don't succeed and um, yeah. and Hikayat Sri Bujang, which uh, is the story in um, the Book of Dragons, which Jonathan edited. I just haven't got around to it yet, though. Like I, I definitely have a couple of additional ideas, um, but again, it's this kind of um, I think for short fiction, it's like it's such an investment of energy, and then you don't earn as much money from it. <laughs> just, just to be like really pragmatic you know if you put that amount of energy into a novella you're, you're more likely to earn more money from it so um it's just uh, it's just getting you to focus on it but yeah <laughs> well maybe it'll work best to do some of the stories at novella length i don't know all i know is that when you first mentioned it to me i thought that is a book i want to read it sounds enormous fun you know i love the two stories that nominally kind of exist within that book and can't wait to see more because it sounds like just delightful i, I gotta write it because soon, soon soon millennial's gonna be like an out-of-date term I know, it's just, a TikTok. who the hell is a TikTok. millennial yeah. why would i even care yeah, but, except exactly. but the kind of things you talked about and which are in hakaya shubazang and are in if at first you don't see try try again are kind of generationally universal they're not really specific to millennials it's that thing you know these kind of experiences when you have a changing of generation a shifting of time uh that drive those stories and give them life and humor and all those sort of things and of course dragon and prude i want to add prudence and the dragon which is in the new collection and that's and that's one of the stories that was not in the original uh spirits abroad i believe but 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 again i can see maybe maybe it's because you mentioned the Woodhouse, and I can kind of see uh, the relationship between humans and dragons in all of these stories are a little bit like the relationship between Bertie and Jeeves. Well, Rollo's my my Woodhouse. In, in okay. First of the crown, Rollo's my Woodhouse. Um, he's just straight up Bertie Wooster as a dragon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think I just enjoy it. I think particularly because I guess. Chinese dragons are like you know really grand and they're like kind of like deities right. you know they're they're really and they bring rain and they represent the emperor and they represent you know all these all these kind of um, impressive things so I just I just really enjoy the kind of incongruity to then then place them in a very mundane situation and then see what they do. Okay. Well, I guess well, we're getting towards. Is there another question, Gary? No, no, I was. Uh, I was just going to say we're getting towards like the, the, the sort of the end of our hour, and we shouldn't keep you around too much longer. So I should first of all by saying, you know, repeat to everybody that Blackwater's sister is out in the world now in bookshops, bookstores, online and off, mm-hmm. everywhere around the world, pretty much in, at least in the English language. And I think Spirits Abroad is also out, or it's due out quite shortly. It's coming out in August. It was August. delayed, I believe. It was one of the yes. pandemic yeah. delay books. Yes. Yeah. So we will have pre- a pre-order link for that in the show notes when that comes out for everybody. Uh, and at some point, there will be a new and exciting thing coming out next year or the year after, we hope. But obviously, once you've worked out what that's going to be. But for now, Zenjo, thank you so very, very much. Thank you for having For making me. the time to talk to us. Thank and you. until the next time, then, this has yeah. been the, the Good Street Podcast. <laughs>